Good morning. Well, we are going to be in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And uh, if you're here visiting with us today for the first time, welcome. Thank you for uh, being here with us. Uh, make sure to fill out that uh, connection card on the back of your bulletin. Drop that in the uh, offering box on your way out. We want to send you something for being here with us uh, today. Well, we have been going verse by verse through the book of 2 Corinthians, and we've been going through about a chapter about a chapter a week. Well, last week we only got halfway through chapter five, so we're going to finish uh, chapter five today. Uh, but just to kind of bring you up to speed, Paul here is writing the second letter to the church at Corinth, and he has those who are are attacking his character and questioning his motives. And so he's really writing, addressing some of these things, saying, "Look, I I'm serving God with sincerity." I'm not like those who have this ulterior motive. I have nothing I'm trying to gain from the church. I'm not, I don't have any financial gain. I'm not trying to trick or manipulate. My, my goal is it to, to somehow gain this position of affluence and power. No, I am serving God sincerely. And he's listing his motivations for why he's doing what he's doing. Now, Paul went through a tremendous deal of, of physical pain and suffering in his life. He was, he was beat up and thrown out of town on different occasions. He suffered greatly. He had people attacking him. And, and in fact, there was, I think I made reference to it last week or maybe the week before, there were people that really did not like him. There's even a group of really powerful people that, that, that committed to, they were going to they were not going to eat or drink until he was dead. I mean, he had some enemies. He had some enemies. And so he's writing. He's just kind of giving his uh, really defense of why he's doing what he's doing. So we talked about one of his great motivations was he knew that all these things that he was facing had meaning and purpose. That there's no such thing as meaningless suffering for people who know the Lord, that God has a purpose in all of it. And we find this consistent with the Christian worldview, that why we have emotions that we have, why when people go through sorrow and pain and we see things that are devastating, why we hurt deep within. Well, if we're just a random result of evolutionary processes, well, those things just are, that's just how it is. But yet, as a believer, we know that there's meaning and purpose even in pain, that God has a purpose in it. And that's one thing Paul pointed out. He said, I know the sufferings of this life, they're not even compared to the future glory that's coming. God's doing something in this. God has a purpose in it. Well, last week we talked about Paul was motivated by the hope of heaven. He says that when this body gives out, when this body dies, I have one eternal in heaven. That for believers, this is the great hope that we know that life, that there's more to life than just here and now. That for Christians, the very best life isn't what we face here on this earth. It's what's to come. Now we can have joy and boldness and we know life has meaning here and here and now. But we know that there's more to come. Paul said when this, when this tent gives way, when this body gives out. He says, I know that I'll be with Christ in his presence. And then he talked about another motivation. That when that time came, he was going to stand before his creator. That he would give an account before 
his creator. And that motivated him. Well, today we're going to look at another motivation that he had, and that is the great love for Christ and the great love that he knew Christ had for him. So let's look at 2 Corinthians 5 and start in verse 14. For the love of Christ constraineth us. To constrain means you're controlled by it, you're bound by it. He's saying, the love of Christ, it's what's controlling me. This is a driving force. This is a motivation in my life. He says that if one died for all, then we're all dead. And that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. So he's saying that, that what, one of the things that's a driving force in his life is the love of Christ. He says, it controls me. This is a motivation of Christ's love for him and his love for Christ. And as believers, like this is really important that we see this. This is, should be what drives us in service towards him. Now we're going to look at these next seven verses. And if there's any doubt, if there's any question in anyone's mind, if God loves you, we're going to see clearly, powerfully, that you are loved greatly by Christ. And he's saying this is something that motivates him. And as believers, knowing that we are loved by him and our love for him should be the driving force behind our service towards him. Now, I've been here before in life, and I know you probably have as well. That sometimes you can get wrapped up into doing certain things out of a guilt, out of a fear. You feel maybe obligated of trying to gain someone's favor. And maybe if you grew up in a certain like religious system that, that presented a bad theology, a bad view of who God is, a bad view of what the grace of God is... Maybe you have had that mistaken theology of why you have to serve God. And it almost is like this, these works that you have to atone, atone for. Like you have to do these certain things to gain God's favor. You have to do these certain things to, 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 to earn your way, to earn your seat at the table. Well, that's not true, though. That's not true that the, the word grace shatters all of those notions. We don't deserve God's grace. We don't deserve God's love. But God has given us that love by his grace. And so our motive shouldn't be the, the fear of God in the sense of God coming down and in, 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 in putting that hammer down. Now the fear of God, and we talked a little bit about that, about that last week. When the Bible uses the term the fear of God, it means this great awe and respect and love for who God is. Now, that should drive us, but not a fear of an angry God, nor should our motivation be for the fear of man. You know, because here's the thing, like, we'll do certain things for a while to please someone, but we won't keep doing those things. And in the long run, that, that, that motive of trying to please someone else, it's a bad motive long term. Because it won't last. Pretty soon, you'll get tired of that. Pretty soon, you'll realize that all of this is just a house of cards that will come 
crashing down when the very person you're trying to please either hurts you or disappoints you, or when you just recognize it's never going to be enough. Now, we should live our life for others. We're going to talk about that. But our motive of doing what we do for Christ, it shouldn't be anything other than our love for Christ. And Paul's saying this, look, the love of Christ controls me. It constrains me. Because if one died for all, then we're all dead. And that he died for all. That they which live should not live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them. The one who rose again. So he's saying Christ died for all. What's this great love? How do we know Christ loves us? Oh, he died for us. Knowing everything about us. Knowing everything. Knowing your worst sin, your worst characteristic, your worst traits. Now, God knew all of those things. Christ on the cross knew all of those things, and yet he still died for you and for me. You know, your spouse or your closest friend, the person who knows the most about you still doesn't know all that God knows about you. All that you even know about yourself, your own faults and flaws and struggles. Yet God knows and he sees all of those things. And the demonstration of his love is that he still died for you and for me. Paul's saying he died for all and this is the motivation. Now, what Paul is not presenting is something called universalism or Christian universalism. There's this teaching that says everybody wins and everyone makes it to heaven in the end. Well, that's just simply not true. That's not true of everyone. The only people who are going to stand in his presence, the only people that can have hope to stand before a holy and a righteous God are those who have been clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Those who by faith have come to Jesus Christ as their Lord and their Savior. So Paul's pointing out there, look, Christ died for all. Who are the all? All those who will believe. Right? It's available to all. It's available to everyone that will believe. He says he died for all. And then this is wonderful. Verse 15, he says, so that, those, so that they which live, those who have been raised to spiritual life in Christ, all believers, he says, we should no longer live unto ourselves. They should henceforth live, not live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. So here's the thing, as, as believers, if you know the Lord, if you've trusted in Christ as your savior, a characteristic of your life, a description of your life should be that your life is not just lived for you, that it's lived for Christ, that it's lived for the people around you, not in the sense of that's what motivates you of trying to please them, but in the sense of that you are willing to sacrifice because you love God first and foremost, and then that love is demonstrated on how you love other believers. That love is demonstrated on how you love and serve people in your life. And so I, this is a convicting question, but I ask us this, does that describe our life as a believer? Could we honestly say, like, we're not living for ourselves, we're living for God, we're living for others, or... Would we be guilty of that selfishness? 
And to a degree, all of us have that and we struggle with that. But hopefully the Holy Spirit of God is changing us and, and, and we're growing and as we're maturing that our life is described as we're not living for others. And look, so much of conflict in our life is a result of selfishness. So much conflict in, in relationships and whether it's marriage or friendships, whether it's in dating, whether it's with coworkers, is because of selfishness. We think we deserve better. We don't prefer someone else better than ourselves. We look at what's best for me, what I feel like doing, what I want to do, what I want, when I want it. And if it doesn't go our way, we get angry. Why? Because we struggle with that selfishness. But Paul's pointing out, look, if, if you've been raised with Christ, if you are a believer, a child of God, you need to view your life. You don't live unto yourself anymore. That you live for Christ. Why? Because he died for you. Because he died for you. See, the love of Christ controls us. What should motivate us is that love for, for him. Verse 16. He says, wherefore, henceforth, know we no man after the flesh. He said, look, we no longer look at people as just flesh and blood. Now, this could mean a couple different things. Like, I think both are good applications. First of all, we don't just look at people as people. We see that they have an eternal soul. That it's far beyond just that outward appearance. And also, just what we see on the outside shouldn't cause us to make judgments. Well, that person has a lot of ability and talent. That person has a lot of outward beauty. It's like, well, there's something that's far more important than that. It's who that person is. What their, their character is. Who they really are. And as a believer, when you know Christ, it should cause us to view people differently. We don't make the same value. Now, in a sense, every single person has value and meaning. And that's why we should treat everyone with respect, even if it's someone that we strongly disagree with. We can still show a mutual respect because they are made in the image of God and they have meaning and they have value. They have importance. But Paul's pointing out, look, it's, it goes far beyond just what you see. Don't make just those judgments on the outside, we don't know people just after the flesh. In fact, he said, that's how he knew Christ. He thought Jesus was just this one of many false messiahs. And there were a lot of people that claimed to be a messiah at the time of Christ. But they all died and so did their following. But yet Christ died and now a couple billion people follow him and worship him. Why? Because he rose from the dead. Well, Paul's saying, look, I used to view Christ just after the flesh. Yeah, he's just this cult leader. In fact, Paul hated Christianity. He thought these guys were all these crazy new cult. And, and that's why he wanted to persecute them. But he says, I don't view him like that anymore. That's not how I view him now. Why? Because Paul experienced a personal relationship with Christ. When he met the Lord on his way to persecute other believers. And he was saved. And now he's saying, I don't view Christ in that way anymore. He says, therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature or a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. 
And this is the beautiful, glorious picture of what happens when we meet Christ. That we're a new creation. That old things are passed away. That all things are become new. Now we're not presenting that this means you never have any struggles or you never have any faults or flaws after you know the Lord. But what we are saying is like something great happens. We become a new creation in Christ Jesus. And see, it's so important to, to point verses like this out and that we understand these things. Because many times people have this understanding of being a Christian or being a believer is just adding some religious rituals to our life. Maybe by starting going to church or by, by starting you know, certain religious things outwardly. But when someone meets Christ, when you know Christ and when you've been saved, you are changed from within. You have new desires, new cravings. You view the world differently. You view people differently. You, we view our possessions and finances differently. Where it's like, look, it's not all about just this material world and what we have in this short life. There's greater meaning and greater value. And Paul's saying, look, when you're in Christ, you are a new creation. Old things are passed away. Why? Because all things are new. That's the picture of salvation. And I ask you this, have you experienced that change? If you've trusted Christ, if you've put your faith in Christ as your savior, he gives you a new heart and new desires. And maybe especially if you've come to Christ a little later on in life, you don't have to look back too far to see the life that you lived and to see what meant what was what you valued before knowing Christ. And sometimes maybe for you it's that every, you know, how Facebook has those memories that pop up from like a year ago or two years ago. And I don't know if you're like me, but I look at that sometimes like, man, I posted a lot of dumb stuff. Like I shouldn't have had Facebook. Like why was I posting that? But sometimes like we can look back and see like wow, like I used to I used to talk like that. I I used to, this was the person I was, but you've been changed. Now, not in an arrogant way, not in a way where you present it like you're without sin now, but you see a change that takes place. Why? Because that's what happens when you know the Lord. That's what happens when you're in Christ. He says, you're a new creation in Christ Jesus. Old things are passed away. All things are become new. And all things are of God who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ and hath given to us that ministry or that calling of reconciliation. Well, he's saying, look, that, that God has reconciled us to himself. God the Father has reconciled us through Jesus Christ. Now, the word reconcile, it means to restoring favor back. And this is important. When we talk about the glorious message of the gospel, it's only glorious if we realize our need of being restored back to God. And a lot of people don't see their need for that. And that's why they look at salvation as, I can take it or leave it. That's why they view salvation as, I just add a few religious things to my life. God gives me maybe a little better life. God kind of changes things for the better in my life. If we don't truly view who we are before a holy and a righteous God, 
We're not going to see our need of a Savior and see our need to be restored back in favor. And this is why Paul, like in the book of Romans, like the first three chapters, it seems overkill, right? Like he's just like pointing out like how horrible everybody is. You know, like you're a sinner, you're, you're bad, you, you're, you're guilty before God. You know, Jews or the Gentiles, the, the, the non-Jews, you're guilty before God. And then he says, Jews, you think that you have, you know, something more to offer because the Messiah came through you, because you've been entrusted the word of God. Yeah, you are still fallen and you also need a savior. And then in Romans 3, he's like, yeah, all of you guys are bad. Everyone's bad. And we think like, wow, this is a little overkill, Paul. But why? He's leading into the glorious message of the gospel, of who Jesus is and how he came to save us. And the only, re the only thing that makes sense for why that's good news is if we truly view ourselves before a holy and a righteous God. That we are guilty, that we have sinned and we have rebelled against our creator and that God owes us nothing, that God is obligated in no way to give us anything, but yet he showed his love and his grace to every one of us by dying for our sins, by living the righteous life that we could not ever come close to living and then dying in our place. So we have to understand there's a need for every single person to be reconciled. Why? Because we have been alienated from God because of our sin. And God is a holy and a righteous judge. And he's saying that, that Christ came, that God the Father sent God the Son, that Jesus Christ came. Why? To restore that favor. To restore that favor which is such a beautiful, beautiful picture of what it means to be saved. And he says he's given us that ministry or that calling of reconciliation. We have the glorious news of the gospel to proclaim that, that sinners who are separated from God, who are alienated from God, can find favor with a holy God why? Because the righteousness of Christ can be placed on our account. We'll look at that here in a moment. But we have this glorious news, and that's our calling. We're going to look at in verse 20, we're Christ's representatives. And we have such a wonderful message to proclaim. Now, I don't know if you guys have ever got, gone into deep conversations with like certain cults that come and they knock on your door and want to talk with you. Um, you know, there's a, this cult here in, in this area. They stand outside of Walmart. Uh, the mother, mother of God uh, is, their, is their cult. Some of you guys have talked to them. And it's like, you really like talk to them for a few minutes. It's like, what a horrible message you guys are giving. Like, it's just this, this endless treadmill of trying to somehow earn this favor with God. Of trying to do enough. Now, the cults are very slick and they'll present things in a way of similar language to what the scripture uses, but they mean something entirely different. It's, oh yeah, believe in Christ, but also these works and it's adding something and usually it's somehow benefiting the founder and leader of the group, ironically. 
And yet, as believers, though, that's not our message. We have a glorious message of the gospel of Christ. That Jesus Christ came to save sinners. And that he finished the work that we could never hope to accomplish. He lived righteously. And then he died in our place so that we can have that favor with God. Because God will restore that favor through the finished work of Christ. And we've been given that ministry, that calling of preaching this glorious news. He said, God, verse 19, God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself. So Christ was the one that made that move in reconciliation, in restoring favor. And, and maybe you've experienced like um, a, a division or a conflict in a relationship. And the person that maybe created that conflict will never apologize. And they're never willing to make it right. They don't admit that they did anything. And while you can forgive them, you truly can't have reconciliation until both parties are willing to come together. Well, what happened is this. God was the one to make that first move. He wasn't the one at fault. We are because of our sin and our rebellion against him. But yet God made that first move to restore that favor back if we will come to faith in Jesus Christ. And he's saying that, that God was in Christ, that you see this unity of the Father and the Son, and of course the Spirit in the redemption of mankind. He said God was in Christ reconciling the world to him, not imputing their trespasses unto them. So the imputation or imputing, that's a theological word that we don't really use. Now, if you've, if you've been a Christian for a little while, if you've been coming to Christ, like you, you've heard that term because we use that term when we're sharing the gospel. What that means to impute, it means to charge to someone's account. So, so what he's saying is, look, God wasn't charging our sins and trespasses to our account. Now, you better believe God knew everyone and knows every one of our sins. He knows everyone. The, the ones that, that we think, well, no one sees this. No one knows what I really think about that person. No one knows how I'm, what I'm doing when I don't think anyone sees. Oh, you better believe God knows and sees all those things. But, but how is a Christian... How do we have this hope and promise that Paul's saying, look, God, when he was reconciled, restoring favor back, he wasn't holding those sins against us. He wasn't placing those sins on our account. How does that work? Is it that God just overlooked all those things? Well, no, absolutely not, because God is holy and he is righteous. God is holy and he's righteous. And it's important to understand that God's not overlooking sin. Just like today, if someone was guilty, they, they, they were in court, they went to a trial and it was beyond a reasonable doubt, a jury found them guilty. And a judge during sentencing steps up and says, you know what, we're just going to overlook this. I think you're sorry. And so, yeah, you killed eight people, uh, but we're just going to let you walk. Well, hopefully that person wouldn't be a judge any longer. Why? Because they're not upholding the law. There's no justice there. So God is a holy and a righteous judge. 
It's not that he overlooked sin. It's just that he paid for that sin. He placed that sin on Jesus on the cross. That that was imputed. The sin was placed on Christ's account. And he suffered and he died for that sin. And then he gives us his righteousness. The righteousness of Christ is put to our account. And that's why we have a hope of standing before a holy and a righteous God and not fearing his wrath and not fearing condemnation because Jesus Christ has placed that righteousness on our account. He's credited that righteousness to us. And he says this, now we are ambassadors. We are Christ's representatives. He says as as God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead be reconciled to God. So this is glorious. He's saying as believers, all of those who have experienced that saving grace, we are to live as we're representing Christ. We are to live as we are the ones proclaiming this glorious news. And again, it's glorious news. And this is what we've been called to do. We're an ambassador. We represent Christ. And so, by the way, that's why it's important how we live. Not in a guilt sense of I have to do these things to gain the favor of God. Or God's going to be angry and God's going to judge me if I don't obey him and follow him. No, of course not. Paul's saying it's the love of Christ that controls me. And Christ loved me so much that he died for my sin. He took my sin and gave me his righteousness, as we'll look at in verse 21. And he's saying, look, the natural response for us is to praise him. The natural response for us is to understand we represent him. We're his ambassadors. We're called to be his ambassadors. The school that you go to. You're his ambassador. The job that you're at, you're an ambassador. You represent Christ there. Your kids' sports games that you go to, you represent Christ there. Got to admit, I was at a tournament this weekend and I had to, had to, wow, man, I was getting passionate. You know, they're fouling my kid. You know, come on, ref. But hey, how we live, how we act, look, we represent Christ. How we live is important. Us sharing the gospel with those around us. That's what God's called us to do. Look, God's put people in your path who don't know the Lord. He's put people in my path who don't know the Lord. And I am his representative. Now, I'm not doing it in my own strength. I'm not presenting this as a man-centered view of the gospel where it's all about us doing it. No, it's God's work in us. But God could choose any number of ways. To, to make his message of salvation known. And you know what he's chosen to do primarily? Is for you and I to speak for Christ. You and I to live in a way that's representing him well. And so I ask you this question. Are you a good ambassador for Christ or a bad one? Am I a good representative of Christ or am I a bad one? And sometimes it's, it's some of both, right? And that's why, again, not out of guilt, but out of love, we should see that it's important how we represent him. It's important how we're living. 
It's important that we are making this message, this beautiful message of reconciliation known. That God has placed people in your path for you to represent Christ to them. For me to represent Christ for them. And while they won't, no one will have an excuse when they stand before God. Right? Because we're, we're condemned. We're condemned because of our sin. No one will have an excuse. However, I think it's important for us to understand God's primary means of the gospel going forward is for us to proclaim that. And once again, we have a beautiful, glorious message. How does all this work? How can all this happen? Well, verse 21, for he, talking about God, that God hath made him, talking about Jesus, God the Son. God the Father made Jesus, God the Son, to be sin for us who knew no sin. So that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. See, God doesn't just overlook all of the faults and sins. God sees and knows every one of them. And all of those sins will be paid for. But Jesus Christ took that sin. God treated Jesus as a sinner on the cross. Now, Jesus was without sin. Right, it says he made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. In other words, Christ never sinned. Sometimes people present this in a really weird, baffling way that Jesus became a sinner. No, Jesus was not a sinner. He was treated like a sinner because he took our sin. It was placed upon him, even though he never committed that sin. And he took the punishment of our sin on the cross. Why? Because God's holy. God is righteous and sin must be paid for. Sin must be atoned for. But the thing is, you and I don't have to atone for that sin because it's already been atoned for. That Jesus Christ died on the cross. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we could be made the righteousness of God in him. This beautiful exchange is this, that our sin was charged to Jesus' account and he paid for it on the cross. And his perfect, righteous life can be credited to our account so that we can have peace with God, so that we don't have to fear condemnation, so that we don't have to fear separation because we have been made righteousness, not because of our works, but because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. And look, maybe you have been taught or you grew up thinking this, just this, this treadmill of works and religion where you're constantly working, but it's never enough. You're constantly trying to do more. You're constantly trying to do a little bit more to think that maybe, maybe you'll be accepted and maybe you'll be loved and maybe you'll be saved. You can throw that treadmill away, the spiritual treadmill. Some of us need a physical treadmill. Don't throw that away. <laughs> you can get rid of that religious treadmill of never doing enough, never being enough, because here's the reality is it never will be. You'll work, you'll stress, 
you'll fear, but on your own, you will never, ever atone for your sin. You will never do enough. But the glorious news is that Jesus Christ finished the work on the cross that we could never do. He lived the perfect righteous life without sin. And he died on the cross. He stood in our place on the cross to atone for all of our sin. So that we can stand in his place in heaven. So that we can be righteous before God for all of eternity. And today the message is this. Look, if you don't know Christ, if you've never experienced what we read about in verse 17, that new creation. Look, it's not about adding religious things to your list. It's about completely surrendering and trusting in Jesus Christ. That he lived the perfect righteous life that you and I can't live and don't live. And that he took all that sin and he took it upon himself and he clothes us in his righteousness. He imputes it or he puts that on our account. So when God sees us, he sees that we have been, that our sins have been forgiven. What a glorious message. And if you don't know this, if you haven't experienced this, turn to Christ today. Trust in him by faith today. Stop trying to do more on your own and recognize it's grace. It's not deserved. It's not earned. It's God's riches at Christ's expense. We don't deserve it. But it's demonstrated Christ's great love for us. And maybe here, here today, and you're doubting whether God loves you. Maybe you've just had a hard life. Maybe you've had a hard life lately. And you wonder and you question, does God really love me? Because if God really loved me, would he really allow all of these things to happen? And sometimes we can wrestle with those things and, and, and have deep conversations with people about some of those things. But really, it falls down to this. Christ, you know Christ loves you because it was demonstrated in the fact that he died for you knowing all of your sins, knowing all of my sins, knowing all of our faults, knowing all of our failures. And yet he died for you anyway. And if you've not, not experienced that forgiveness, if you've not experienced that in Christ, trust in him today. Surrender to him. You can't earn it. You can't achieve it. You can't keep it. It's through him. And if you know Christ, You've experienced this. May I just remind us humbly that we are his representatives. And may our motivation for serving God and living our life for him and not living it for ourselves not be one that's based out of this fear and, and, and this guilt-driven life. But may it be because, as Paul said, the love of Christ controls me. The love of Christ constrains me. And we have a glorious message. And we represent Christ. We are here in Christ's stead. Not as a Savior, but we're representing our Savior. And we are His ambassadors.